at the outset, Exodus, as we are accustomed to looking at short summaries of the book for our own understanding so that we can grow in the knowledge of God concerning the subject matter of each book, but also to see how it ties in to the grand picture of God's redemption. And that one word, redemption, is what we could define the book of Exodus as being all about. If you think of Exodus, the book of Exodus, we think of redemption. We think of Israel being redeemed from slavery. Redemption or deliverance. Redemption is a more encompassing, all-encompassing word because it has to do with a history. It has to do with a people who were once free who became enslaved. What a parallel there is to see in every individual life of every human being that comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Used to be the Jew before Jesus came who owned the story of redemption. But the narrative that we see in Exodus has broadened out to fill the scope of all humanity in its redemption according to John 3.16. For God loved this world so much that he gave his only begotten Son, the one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We were enslaved in sin and Jesus came to set us free. We spoke about the book of Hebrews as we just completed the study of 13 chapters in that general epistle, or the epistle to the Hebrews. And um, if there's one word that we can describe the book of Hebrews as being about, it would be the word better. And we spoke of that in detail yesterday. If Hebrews means better, then Exodus means redemption, we see a parallel that is very striking when you think about it. As I'm speaking with my eyes closed now, with no notes, but seeing the parallel in my own mind between the the sacrificial system that we see outlined in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. We see the institution of the priesthood discussed in the book of Hebrews in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. We see the tabernacle spoken of in detail in the New Testament. We see all of this originally discussed in none other book than the book of Exodus. So there's a New Testament explanation and expounding and fulfillment that is discussed regarding the contents of the book of Exodus in the book of Hebrews. We see this also in 1 Corinthians when the events of 
the Exodus is discussed. Being baptized in the cloud under Moses. Speaking of the departure of Israel from Exodus and route to the promised land. It's a great deliverance that happened. We see this discussed and explained, expounded upon in the book of 1 Corinthians, particularly chapter 10. We see the discussion of uh, the Passover as well. The book of Exodus, in one word, could best be described as speaking of redemption. What happened historically with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the conclusion of Genesis 50? We see that it continues in the book of Exodus. And this uh, redemption speaks of the greater picture of our own redemption from slavery to sin. We look at the book of Exodus, and uh, as I mentioned, we see the continuation of the story of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as they came and sojourned, and that's the transition, before the great deliverance comes. There's a migration of the Israelites under their predecessor Jacob who came and dwelt being reunited with his son Joseph as we recall from the book of Genesis and there the children of Israel had great favor because of God's mercy with the current Pharaoh who highly favored Joseph who met Joseph's father who esteemed highly Joseph's people and they were given a portion of Egypt in which to continue their livelihood and as they did Joseph eventually died and it's written a pharaoh that didn't know Joseph rose up now we see the big picture of redemption we see the parallels in our own lives when a situation changes. We see the application when circumstances change. When a new boss comes. When a new governor comes. A new president. A new political party. A new teacher. And so many other things that can happen that suddenly we find ourselves out of favor, at least the way we used to see ourselves. And we see the reaction of the people under this big change. We see the trial that they went through, God already predicting it. 
having told Abraham that for 430 years they would be under the rulership of another entity and they would finally be brought out. That time was approaching and that's where Exodus begins. As an overview, when we think about it, Exodus is concerned with three spiritual as well as geographical locations concerning the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who became the nation of Israel. Exodus 1 to 12. Exodus 1 to 12. It concerns Israel in Egypt. Exodus 13 through 19 concerns Israel in the wilderness. And Exodus 20, I should say, uh, 19 through 40 concerns Israel at that mount called Sinai. That middle portion is actually chapters uh, 13 through 18. So we have 1 through 12, concluding with the Passover, concerning Israel in Egypt, and 13 through 18, concerning Israel and their wanderings in the wilderness. And although they haven't gotten to the promised land, in the wilderness, they come to a specific location, which concerns the rest of the book, from chapters 19 through 40. A rough outline. To see that the book, the book is concerning Israel. The book is about redemption, the redemption of Israel. As we have spoken in our life training school, we see this word type. We see the word anti-type. And the word type is speaking of a shadow or a foreshadow, more precisely, of uh, the anti-type, which is the actual substance coming later. The entire book, as we mentioned, concerning these three elements, which are the priesthood that was set up by God, the sacrificial system that was set up by God, and the tabernacle, the instructions for the building of, of which were given by God, and the completion of it. They all are types. And the greatest anti-type of which these types find their fulfillment is the Lord Jesus Christ. In every one of those three major elements found in the book of Exodus. So we have, we have this priesthood that is set up. And we just finished studying Hebrews. We saw of, of all that priesthood <coughs> that was set up by God, the high priest having the preeminence in the whole system 
to represent man before God, Jesus Christ became the ultimate, faithful, eternal, everlasting high priest. Forever to be our faithful high priest before the living God, before the Father. The sacrificial system is fulfilled with the atoning blood of the Lamb of God, which is Jesus Christ. All of the sacrifices pointed to the antitype Jesus Christ, particularly his blood as the ultimate sacrifice for us. He is the high priest forever. He is the sacrificial lamb whose blood redeems us from slavery to sin. Finally, the tabernacle, the institution, the meaning of the various elements of it, all find their fulfillment also in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll look at these things in detail as we go along. But it's important <clears throat> to have this overview at the outset so we know what we are going into and what we are expecting to focus on and get fine-tuned about as we're reading. The book is about redemption, more specifically the redemption of Israel. And in the context of the whole program of salvation from Genesis to Revelation, it is a foreshadow or type of the anti-type of the ultimate redemption from slavery to sin. Not just a nation or oppressive rulers who are human beings controlled by the devil. It's part of God's program before his great deliverance comes for Israel. But our deliverance, humanity's deliverance from the tyranny of the devil and his dominion over our lives before he came to Christ. Every one of us was a servant of the devil. Every one of us. How? Not necessarily because we named the devil's name and worshipped him every day, elaborately, with a specific shrine to Satan, but in effect, when we were the servants of sin, we were under bondage to the devil. And Jesus came to set us free from that tyranny. The book concerns three major elements which is Israel in Egypt, Exodus 1 to 12. Israel in the wilderness, Exodus 13 through 18. Israel at Mount Sinai, the remainder of the book from 19 to 40. The book concerns three elements again, which are particularly serving as the types or foreshadow of the antitypes. Antitype, first of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the antitypes with regard to our deliverance through the means of the blood of Jesus. Our personal deliverance through the means of a high priest that came and interceded for us. And our fellowshipping with God as the living tabernacles of God. The tabernacle was a predecessor to the temple that was built centuries later under King Solomon. The tabernacle was a portable sanctuary, it can be called. God began that. He began that to inform Israel that I will be present in this 
temporary uh, residence for me, where my glory will be. A place where the priest can minister to me on your behalf and on my behalf to the people. It was a uh, predecessor to the temple. We become the tabernacle of God. And later on we see the Bible speaking of each of us becoming the temples of God. In our bodies and also in the church at large. It's an amazing development of God's redemption plan that we see beginning in Exodus that follows all the way to the Revelation where we also see that the song of the deliverer that would be used in the book of Exodus, Moses, is sung. Exodus is a book that concerns every single Christian. Subject matter contextually originally concerns the Jew, the descendants of Abraham. It concerns the redemption of the nation of Israel. But there are elements there, as we've just seen. The types point to our own lives. Exodus chapter 1. With this in mind, we begin to read Exodus chapter 1. And I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. You see groups of four here, three times, totaling the twelve tribes, the twelve sons of Israel, who was Jacob. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who are descendants of Jacob were seventy persons. For Joseph was in Egypt already. I like someone with a clear connection, with a clear voice who can uh, read this slowly and carefully for us as this will go in the recording for others to be able to hear. Would you please continue to read? In fact, you can go back to verse 1 and read this chapter for us so we can follow along. Exodus chapter 1 Now there are names of children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. For Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there 
rose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look at the people of the children of Israel and more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal surely with them, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us. And so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burden. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Fidam and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel severe with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was the, with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra and the name of the other Pua. And he said, When you do the duties of midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth tools, if it is son, then you shall kill him, but if it is daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of the Egypt commanded them but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved this male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied, grew very mightily. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. I'm going to read the same chapter now in the New Living Translation. Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel, that is Jacob, who moved to Egypt with their father, each one or each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. In all, Jacob had 70 descendants in Egypt, including Joseph, who was already there. In time, Joseph and all of his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful 
and filled the land. Eventually a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pitham and Ramses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all their demands. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live, too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this, he demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They are more vigorous and have their babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. So God was good to the midwives. And the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. Exodus chapter 1 reveals to us this bondage under which the Israelites came. The slavery this oppression is clearly outlined here in chapter 1. And following this chapter, from chapter 2, we see the God who has already planned their deliverance and prophesied about it hundreds of years earlier is going to begin to set that plan in motion by raising up a deliverer whom he will specifically preparing a point whom we know as Moses. You see this uh, devotional exposition from the book of Hebrews which we concluded yesterday. A similar style of study and exposition we continue in Exodus which is to go over the book and the contents with a goal of learning how to connect with God better 
to worship Him better, to live our lives in honor of Him better. And right here in chapter 1 we can see the terrible oppression. I was in fact hearing the personal story of a brother. The tremendous oppression he was under of the devil after he became a believer he had dedicated or rededicated his life to the Lord and he was describing the relentless pursuit of the devil on his life legally, financially, emotionally and God gave him a great deliverance but it didn't happen quickly you see how long the Israelites suffered God was watching all the time God sees how long we have been suffering and we suffer he's very intimately acquainted with each of our stories each of our situations our circumstances because he's a good God God sees everyone and he requites or rewards and repays everyone according to his plan and according to their deeds. Here we see this monstrous pharaoh brutally oppressing a people who did not do any wrong. Their crime was that they increased in numbers and thus increased in power. There's no willful transgression or trespassing. The Egyptian code of conduct or law. There is no seeking to overthrow Pharaoh. But the oppression seemed to continue mercilessly. We think about our lives what things are going on, what things have gone on perhaps for a long time before a sudden wonderful miracle happened. Some people can think about their marriage and this brother that was uh, relaying his personal narrative was speaking of the horror that happened through an ex-wife who appeared to be adulterous as well was just uh, demoralizing him and oppressing him with everything he had that he gave for her and the family. She's not only not satisfied, but she damaged everything. Sometimes the very next minute or next hour, everything he tried to do for her. Some people find themselves in a situation, even those who have become Christian who have dedicated their lives to serve and follow Jesus or rededicated their lives after a lapse in their lives. How could things go wrong? Why are things not working out? There was a groaning, as we heard in the life training school, right there in the beginning of, a, of the book of Exodus. There's an oppression. Some people, it's through sudden illness, it's through oppressive powers, through witchcraft, it's through the anger 
of the dragon, the devil, against believers, and that too against a set group of believers who really are living to glorify God. They're very close to God's heart, and the devil's all the more angry at them, and he hurls everything he's got at them. And the cry goes up, how long? God was watching. He was getting ready to mete out punishment to repay as Pharaoh threatened his people, God's people. God was about to threaten Pharaoh. He was preparing a deliverer who would be born in slavery, who would be set free himself by the mercy of God and he would be prepared by God to go back and set others free by the mercy of God. God was getting ready to reward the deliverer who was obedient to God. God was getting ready, as you see in chapter 1, already played out, all those who fear him. This group of Israel, uh, the Israeli tribes, they feared God, and they followed the commandments of God in preparation to make the exodus. The term exodus, of course, means departure. And although it's not in the Hebrew, the Hebrew uh, word or phrase to describe the book of Exodus is um, related to the opening words. That this is the generation or these are descendants or these are the sons of that patriarch, Jacob. But the term is taken from uh, the Latin Vulgate which in turn is derived from the Septuagint, which uh, was a Greek version of the Old Testament produced by Jews prior to the time of Jesus. And that word that's used there means departure and coming out of it. This book, Exodus, concerns a key element called covenant. Recall that God made a covenant with Abraham and that covenant he continued with Isaac. That agreement covenant he continued with Jacob. And he remembered that as he looked upon the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He remembered that he said, I would bring my people out. The Hebrews who could remember the word of God would have had a foundation from which to groan to God. But even if they didn't remember, God remembered. That's such a consolation and confidence we can have. Even if we groan and we are oppressed under the burden of some pressure and some problem, we know that God is the one even as we recently saw in the book of Hebrews, who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be there for you. It may look like I'm not there, but that's where your faith is tested. And even if it looks like your faith is going to fail, like Simon Peter, the Lord is there to pray for us, our faithful high priest. He's there to support us and help us. And he's there to revive us. So what comes in? This wonderful four-letter word beginning with the letter H, hope. Hope. People had no hope for hundreds of years. 
And all of a sudden, hope dropped in to their midst, into their lives. That which they thought was long gone, and incidentally in the history of the United States, a good number of what they called the Negro spirituals. These days, the term Negro may be considered as, or deemed as, um, derogatory. But it's referring to the heritage of the um, slaves that were brought from Africa, and those were made slaves by the oppression of a certain group of people here. And they suffered being exploited in the plantations and elsewhere. Many of them who had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ had this burning hope that even though we look like we're slaves for all the duration of our descendants, including us, seems like we can't break out of the cycle. God sent a man in the 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, to address the nation, telling them that I'm making a proclamation of emancipation. The people are going to have the right to be free. And there was a war that centered on that. The Civil War. And the people, they kept hope alive by talking to one another, reminding one another. And very often, they would refer back to Moses, the deliverer, and the redemption of the Jewish people from the oppression of slavery in Egypt. And there were many wonderful preachers from the African American community who continued to fuel that hope because God's Spirit is working. God did a miracle. But there's an important point to consider. As we'll see, played out in the book of Exodus and then following the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and all the way down to us, which will continue until the time of the end of the world. And that is Whatever freedom is officially given by the powers that be, we can have the enemy still come after that freedom and still seek to oppress. We see the oppression of the African-American community still continue in various places to this very day after so many years. Similarly, we see the oppression of other groups of people. And it takes people to recognize who they really are and what they've been given and how they're supposed to walk in their freedom and stand up to the power that be who pervert justice and want to continue the oppression scheme. And we are told the same thing as believers. But there's a conduct that's required of us. 
in our remembrance of the covenant that we have, this agreement, this proclamation from God. There's a conduct that we have to make sure that we abide by. There are principles to follow which have to do with faith. To remember God's word and to have faith and to exercise that faith to keep that hope alive by looking to God. Exodus is a, speaking of a covenant. God has made a covenant with us through not just an agreement that's been written on paper or even etched in stone as it literally was with the tabernacle, uh, with the tablets that were given to Moses, but uh, a covenant that has been given through the blood of the Son of God. It's been given through the blood, the holy blood of the Son of God. That's the ultimate. That's the covenant we hold fast to. In this uh, brief narrative of the oppression in chapter 1 of Exodus, we see all of the above, as was mentioned. This new king that came along began to oppress the people of Israel. And it appears that he was afraid that if war breaks out, in verse 9, he said to his people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we, we must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. Keep them under. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us, then they will escape from the country. He didn't want to let go. The devil doesn't want to let go of any of his people, any of the creation of God that he has made his people by keeping them under his oppression, by enticing them to sin, and keeping them under sin. One is, we're born into this transgression of Adam, this sinful nature. Secondly, there's a willful choice. That all of us, every one of us can, as we read the scriptures, know exactly, many times, where and how we sinned against God. And we're under the bondage of the devil because of that. Not just because we're born into sin, but because we willfully sin. In the case of Israel, there's a prediction of prophecy made. There's nothing written here of sin that they committed. But God was watching to bring justice to them. God was watching to see who would remember but also who would receive the revelation. Because when one is under slavery for a long time, one can forget quite easily the original identity. God comes and gives us value and dignity when the devil wants to make us as a nobody, 
and oppress us. And we can see this also in various stages of our lives. The pharaoh here, the king of Egypt, was a puppet, a pawn, who was influenced by the devil himself. Now he says to his own people that he fears that the slaves will turn against him and then leave during wartime. But there's a greater motivation behind that in the person of the devil, which is to destroy God's people. The devil watched and heard everything God said to Adam and Eve in the garden that somebody's coming that's going to crush his head. And he, when he found that God found a man in Abram who was willing to believe him and he was beginning to do something, Satan was observing all these things. Something's going on. Then the promise that in Isaac your seed shall be called. There's a program when God is developing. There's a continuation and he's followed it up until now in Egypt. And he has successfully used someone who was open to his game. And he slithered into him, Pharaoh, and used him to press God's people. God was watching also. And as God was beginning to repay Pharaoh, he also repaid Moses for all his obedience by giving him a name that is so famous by giving him a place in heaven although he forfeited the earthly promised land we also see here the reward that God gave to the midwives you don't hear about the midwives ever again they seem to be so obscure even though significant in this drama in which this infanticide is supposed to be committed this massive slaughter of the Hebrew babies the boy babies they played a significant role Shipra and Pua they were commanded to kill There's a Chinese female physician who's working in the mainland there in Asia, in China. And she came to faith and she said the government wants us to kill babies. They have a certain number that they allow and they have all the excuses, like Pharaoh, too much population, we won't have enough resources and whatever. And she said the law came one day, years ago she wrote this, that as a physician I have to kill the babies if the family had more than a certain number. I think it was two. At the time that edict came from the government. And she said, they threatened us that we'll lose our license. May even go to jail. She said, as a Christian now, how can I commit murder? See, the conscience was quickened. She understood. 
It's not what you do. No matter what the government says, no matter what anybody says, I have a conscience within me. I live by a higher standard, higher standard, and I live before the living God. By God's grace, she escaped all of that mess as she stood by her convictions, saved babies, and then she was able to immigrate to the United States, as I recall. But we are called to do things that are unconscionable, that go against the very basic dignity of human value and values. These women could have been killed. These Hebrew midwives. But they had a faith that we'll also see is very transparent in the very parents of Moses. The baby that was born to those parents from the tribe of Levi. They had faith and they refused to cower under fear, even the threat of death, to disobey God. They believed God will reward them. Moses' parents had faith because he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, which is equivalent to diligently obey him. These Hebrew midwives they just appear briefly, momentarily, or momentary, in a momentary fashion. God has written their story in a few verses for all eternity. God's eyes are on every single individual. When we stand for the truth, when we stand for justice, when we stand for what God has told us to do and follow through, God will come through for us. says in verse 17, but because the midwives feared God, there's certain people who are under oppression in a marriage, maybe the husband and maybe the wife, and the devil raises up the very spouse to put fear and create fear and threat, threaten, sometimes threaten divorce, sometimes threaten physical damage, financial damage, all kinds of slander, a whole cloud of evil forebodings of the very spouse who does not not only fear God but is wrathful and becomes a pawn of the devil to try to do what? Make the other spouse if it is such a relationship to give up the faith or to compromise which is the beginning of the apostasy. When a person stands against that, even when it's so close at home, or to home, they can confidently know that God will defend and support me and deliver me out of this. He will reward me. Similarly, when a person is an employee and they're called to do things that are contrary to God's will, and the threat comes, you may lose your job, your livelihood, your insurance, whatever benefits you get, Perhaps in certain situations the threat comes that you'll be fined on top of losing your job, maybe imprisoned, maybe 
sent out of the country. But we stand by a conviction that God's said to do certain things a certain way. I can't violate God's law. These women evidently had the fear of God and they had the law of God in their hearts and their consciences. Because they feared God more than Pharaoh, and it's also typical or typifies Moses later on, as we'll see in the New Testament, he chose to go along with the people who were under reproach by the physical powers that were. He chose to suffer with them rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season in Egypt. These women could have been rewarded by Pharaoh. First of all, they would have been spared from execution, which could have very well happened. Secondly, they could have been rewarded by him. All those prospects that the enemy, the tempter, would have brought before them, such as he did with the Son of God himself in the Judean wilderness centuries later. They despised all of that. We have to despise money, monetary gain, financial advantage. We have to despise promotion in the sight of man and honor from men. We have to despise our creaturely comfort in what we'd like to do and what makes us feel good when it comes to serving God and obeying God's commandment to fear God more than anything and anyone else. This is what they did when they spared the children. God gave them a word of how to answer. Sometimes the enemy will come and make a person cower in fear because they don't know how they will face a situation, how they will answer a situation or a person or people. When we begin to step out in faith and believe God, God told me to do something, I believe, not, not only that God exists, but he told me to do something. And God told me that he is faithful to help me, faithful to redeem me, faithful to deliver me. I'm going to do what God said to do and he will show me what the next step is. They believed God and God gave them the answer to give to the Pharaoh that stumped the Pharaoh in effect. And right here in the first chapter of the book of Exodus we see how faithful God is. So no one can say, why did God ever have his people in slavery and do all this and try to find fault with God? We see the character of God shining through as a testimony of his goodness, of his faithfulness all the time. He's not responsible. There's an enemy that we have and he's always shooting at God's people. But God says, I've given you the armor of God. Believe God. We have the word of God. He'll help us to continue to serve God. And God will make sure that we come out on top, ultimately. These people, these women, they were rewarded by God. And it seems like the story of the women these Hebrew midwives, has ended 
with their answer to the Pharaoh in verse 19, but after uh, stating the increase of the Israelites, God specifically says how in his goodness he rewarded them for fearing him for honoring him, revering him, keeping his commandments. The Apostle Peter said, when the religious leaders filled with the spirit of the devil, when they came to Peter, he spoke up with the apostles and said, you judge whether it's right to obey God or obey man. You want us to disobey God? And keep quiet? Do you want us to keep quiet about Jesus? You judge for yourself, which is right. God here, he rewarded them by giving them families of their own. We can know for certain, no matter what pressure we feel, what oppression is threatened over our heads, God expects us to do the right thing by him which often is antithetical to what seems to be right by man. The word of God and this walk of faith requires that we believe God will always stick with those who stick with him, his truth. Even if we're singled out and it comes down to us against them as a single person. Humanly speaking, there's no human help, no help around us. We know God is with us. And if God be for us, who can be against us? God will. He will come through. In the process, God is doing something with our character. He's developing our faith. Every pressure, every trial, every problem is an opportunity for our faith to get stronger, our character become more golden, more tested, tried and true. With that objective, we can know that when we're following God, no matter what the devil throws at us, what new threat comes, new Pharaoh, who has no respect or regard for us, who despises every favor God has given us, every breakthrough, every miracle. We need to learn to despise all of that. Not to treat those people in power with uh, disregard, or disrespect but to stand firm in our covenant relationship in our confidence in our Savior notice it's not just political oppression national oppression financial oppression the Israelites had all of that going on but in our lives, it can be oppression from the devil through demons, through evil spirits, through witchcraft, through all kinds of things that give bodily affliction and oppression of the mind, attacks on the mind, attacks on our security, our faith. Job experienced an onslaught of attacks from hell. But he came out a winner, overcoming everything, and he came out with double what he had. 
This is the promise of God. As we conclude this morning, looking at Exodus chapter 1, whatever bad thing has happened to us, or continues to happen to us, especially when we're coming closer and closer to God, when we finally decided, I'm going to live for God, every word of God's word will become my guide and very life's breath. I will live with the brightest testimony I can possibly have in this world by abiding in Jesus. And we're determined to do that and we have problems. We have things that have happened to us and we wonder how long is going to continue, how long will I have to suffer. The same God who is watching so closely this generation of Abraham, he had a promise that he made to Abraham. We have a promise as we are the seed of Abraham through Christ. We have a new covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only will he never leave us nor forsake us, he's promised to make us to sit on his throne with him. The book of Revelation, Jesus says, the lot, the final destination of all those who overcome just as he overcame, he said, and am set on my Father's throne. So those who follow me, who overcome, they'll also sit with me on my throne. It's not equivalence to God, but it's an authority and an undissolvable connection with him for eternity. To be one with him for eternity to reign with Him for eternity. All of this is open to us in a much clearer fashion. So much more than any of these people under bondage could have possibly known in the book of Exodus. Who were the seed of Abraham. We've become grafted into the tree. Into that olive tree. We've become citizens who were once aliens. God brought us into His family. We have promises written all over our lives from God. We need to take courage and refuge in His Word, in His covenant, and know that God, who has sent the High Priest, our Deliverer, Jesus Christ, has made all the provision necessary for our total redemption and deliverance, and has secured for us a place in His heavenly home, His tabernacle, and has come to live within our bodies, made us his tabernacle. How deep and wonderful, how tremendous a unity God goes to great lengths to describe. Such a oneness that is nothing like anything else in the universe. Because Jesus said, I want them to be one with us, Father, just like we are. I want them to have the love that we share. No matter what you're going through this morning, today, what is still happening, seems the enemy is relentless and keeps causing chaos and trouble in your family, in your job, in your Christian journey, in your walk of faith. Know this. You of all people are his special treasure as God would show the Israelites up to something big. So 
something good, great and glorious. God has not stopped. His program hasn't stopped. His plan hasn't stopped in our lives. We need to keep talking to Him. Keep remembering what He's told us in Christ Jesus, every promise. And keep praising Him and worshiping Him. Keep singing while we're going through the trial. Because we believe God will change the situation. Because He's faithful. In the book of Exodus, redemption is the overarching theme. It's the story of our lives. We can rest confidently that God will put an end to every oppression in our lives, every attack from the devil, every pain that he afflicts. God will bring it to an end as we continue to call upon his name and continue to believe on his word. God will come through just like he did for Moses and the Israelites. Heavenly Father, we thank you for helping us, Lord, to embark on this study of your word, the book of Exodus. Lord, as the second book of this 66 book of your covenants, culminating with the ultimate covenant in your blood, Lord, help us to understand in as much as we understood why we have a better covenant reading the book of Hebrews of how we have the ultimate redemption as depicted and typified in the book of Exodus for every sore, every trouble, every trial. We have the blood of Jesus covering us, our Passover lamb. Help us, Lord, to know that you're going with us to the office. You're going with us, Lord, to the marketplace. You're with us right in the home. Oh God, our God, there's no one like you. We thank and praise you, Lord. You've told us you'll come through every single time. Every single time. We praise you for it. And help us to spread that hope which is based on truth and not just some vain imagination or wishful thinking. It's founded on your truth, on your promises, and God cannot lie. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Help us to bring hope to people today in Jesus' mighty name, with the hope that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.